Okay. Let's just bow our hearts as we turn to God's word together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again that it is living and powerful. And this morning, Lord, speak to us. Father, open our ears and Lord, just make our hearts ready to receive what you have to say. Father, we just pray now that you just continue that work that you promised that you would continue until the day that Jesus comes, until we meet him face to face. Lord, we've seen already in our study just a glimpse of the glorified Jesus, the one who calls himself our friend. And so, Lord, as we look at these things this morning, Lord, help us to see, Lord, where we can fall down, where we make mistakes, Lord, and help us to learn from those things. Help us, Lord, also to see what it is you desire and live our lives to please and glorify you. So, Father, just take this time now and use it, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're studying through now the seven letters to the seven churches. Last week we looked at the church at Ephesus, um, these churches in modern-day Turkey. Now, Ephesus we looked at, the, the real failing of that church was that they'd moved away from their first love. Doctrine was good. They'd held to the doctrine, but they'd lost something. They'd got so busy in getting it right that they'd actually got it wrong. And they'd forgotten to keep Jesus as the first thing in their lives and their minds and their hearts. You know, back in Matthew we read that we should seek first the kingdom of God before anything else, before any work, before any ministry. It's seeking God himself. And so we, we see a number of lessons from there. We looked at the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, a church who, there is nothing bad said about them in the letter that Jesus sends to them. There's nothing bad at all. They're just commended in a sense because they're being faithful through this tribulation, through this trial that they've gone through and we're about to go through. And we've said already, we'll talk more in a moment about the prophetic aspects of these things. And then this morning we're going to move on and look at the church at Pergamon to start with and then uh, if time allows we'll move on to Thyatira as well. Now we've said already that there's four levels of meaning to these letters. Very clearly there's a local application. Right, we're told, John said, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. So this is clearly a local application. The book of Revelation itself would have been sent to these churches. But each one has its own specific letter. But there's a personal application because we're told, he that has an ear to hear. Well, that's everybody that would read these things. There's a, a lessons here for each one of us. There's also a message to all churches of all time throughout history. So all seven of these churches would benefit from the things that were written to the others. And it's been the same since. Because we're told in Revelation 2.7, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, plural. But there's also then this prophetic aspect where these letters depict the ages of the church. And we've already gone through and looked at some of these incredible details and parallels that we find in Scripture. And we shouldn't be surprised because in the opening few verses of the book itself, we're told that... This is a book of prophecy. So there should be no surprise for us to find those things. So let's jump in and look a little bit at this church at Pergamos. What was the church like? This is from verses 12 to 17. So this is now the third church that we're going to look at, the third letter to the the third church in this sequence. Well... Pergamos, we find, was situated about 50 miles north of Smyrna. You've just seen it on the map there. It's about 15 miles inland off the Aegean Sea. But the city was given over to idolatry. And it worshipped many, many pagan gods. 
there was an acropolis on top of this hill. You can just about see up the top there. And this amphitheater, again, that you can see in the picture, that would seat around about 10,000 people. But it wasn't there just to provide entertainment. This was all about idolatrous and pagan worship. Pergamos was famous for a number of these deities, so on, that they worshipped. Zeus, the Greek and Roman deity that was worshipped there, there was an altar. It was a massive altar. It was measured about 100 feet on each side. And it became a place also of Caesar worship, worshipping the emperors of Rome. Asclepius is another name you may have heard of. Um, this was a serpent god, was worshipped. And he believed that he had this power to heal. And of course, this really is just a distortion of the account we read in Numbers 21. If you remember there, where the children of Israel, through disobedience, the Lord allowed these fiery serpents to go amongst them. And if they uh, were bitten, then it was kind of sure death. But then God told Moses to make this bronze serpent, to put it on a pole. And anybody then who looked at this serpent on a pole would be healed. Well, it seems a very strange kind of thing. And yet when we get to John's Gospel in John chapter 3... We find that Jesus explains that was all a picture looking to him. That anybody that looks at Jesus who was put up on a pole effectively, bronze as the serpent was in for the Moses one, is a metal that typically would bear heat. It speaks of judgment. With Jesus on the cross to guard judgment. And so the whole of that account really was just looking at Jesus. And yet that story had obviously got passed down. It had got distorted as so often uh, these things do. So much of mythology has its roots in things that were true, in things that were real. Much of Greek mythology is born out of the giants we read about in Genesis chapter 6 and so on. And again, you look in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, there's much about the giant tribes. Well, those are the the things that became the the legends, that became the Greek uh, myths that have been passed down to us. Well, this Asclepius... Uh, this serpent god uh, also becomes a symbol that's used for the medical profession. Uh, you may have seen even to this day uh, in the medical profession there's a, often a, a badge, a kind of a, a serpent on a pole. Well, this is where it comes from. It comes from this Escalapius because of this idea that he had the power to heal. Well, obviously, ultimately it was speaking of Jesus, but it got distorted. So this pagan god had become worshipped. Let's just read the text first then. We read, to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, These things, says he, which is a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you. And then look at this, where Satan dwells. What a statement that is. Jesus saying that, Satan dwells amongst these people in this area where this church is. And then he says, I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them which hold the doctrine of Balaam. We'll come back to some of these things in a moment. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So has there also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And Jesus says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So again, straight away we see a broader application than just this church. There's lessons here even for us right now. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written which no man knows saving he that receives it. 
And we'll come back to some of these things. I want to just take you through some of the history surrounding Pergamos and particularly looking at it from a prophetic side of things. Now, as I said already, this depicts the third church age. The age really going from about 313 AD up to about 590 AD. This is where Constantine, the Roman emperor, is in power. And I'll explain a bit about him and the background in a moment. Um, is this parallel and analogous to the mustard seed, which we'll also talk about, the, the parable in Matthew 13. And you remember when we were looking, two weeks ago, we were looking at the history of Israel and seeing the incredible parallel between the history of Israel and then what has unfolded through the history of the church. And that's just a matter now of historical record. And yet these things were foretold. So we see it was prophetically revealed before it took place. For us, the the stage we are in history, we can look back and see it. Now Israel started with that time of espousal. That's very much speaking of the church at Ephesus, that love of espousal. Then there was that victory through the time of war as Israel entered into the promised land. Again, analogous to Smyrna, who had this time of suffering and yet great victory. And then we get to this church age now, if you like, Pergamos, where complacency effectively brings defeat, as we'll explain in a moment. And that's really the time of the judges. They'd entered the land, the children of Israel, and they got sloppy. They'd forgotten to keep God as number one. They'd forgotten the fact that every day they'd gone out and collected manna and been provided for by God, and suddenly they forget all those things. And they start embracing the world. And You can see the scripture there from Judges. But they didn't deal with those Nations in the land that God has said to destroy, but they chose to live among them. And those things, as it says in Judges here, chapter 2, verse 3, they will be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. Well, that's what happened to Israel. Well, the same thing happens to the church. You see, during this period of history, the Roman Empire was divided into two sections. Constantine, in a bid for total control, decides to go to war against his nemesis, if you like, who's Maximus. Now, there was a battle that was about to take place at a place called Milvan Bridge. Now, so the story goes, Constantine looked up in the sky and he saw a flaming cross in the sky. And he heard a voice saying, in this sign conquer. This is referred to in a number of uh, historical accounts. But because of this, and this picture, by the way, in the background, I don't know if you see it, but this is a, a picture just depicting this battle, the gather the battle, this cross up in the sky and, and so on. Well, Constantine went out there and won the battle. And he was so impressed by all of this that apparently he converts to Christianity. Now, whether it was a true conversion or not, we don't know. There are accounts that suggest that actually at the end of his life, Constantine truly made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But whatever, at this point, he seems to embrace Christianity. Now, this brings about a dramatic change that has affected the world ever since. It's one of the kind of key moments in history, in a sense. You see, one day the Christians are being fed to the lions. The next day, because of this situation, the Christians are given equal rights and even given their land and property back at the expense of others. There's a dramatic shift in the way Christians were viewed. Now, according to historians, Constantine then invited Christian bishops from all over the area to come to Rome to talk about this new faith. He wanted to find out more about this Christianity, more about Jesus. Now, one of the bishops that came was a monk called Damasus. 
Now, in an effort to please all the religions, because there was a number of religions all around the empire at this time, particularly in places like Pergamos as we're looking, well, what Damasus did was trying to bring in this kind of mixture of religions and take some of the things that have been familiar to them, things that have been handed down from Babylon, some of those practices, and merge them with Christianity. You know, it's no secret that a lot of the celebrations we have in our calendar, Easter, Christmas, they're not in the Bible. We're not commanded to celebrate those things. They're ultimately pagan in their origin. Now, why do we celebrate them? Because it gives us an opportunity to proclaim Christ. And that should be really for us why we celebrate those things if we choose to celebrate them at all. But again, Constantine was clearly impressed with this individual, Damasus, and his ability to please everyone. I mean, you've got to look at it from Constantine's perspective. He's a Roman emperor. He's got a number of subjects under him, a number of different religions. And somebody steps on the scene and seems to be drawing everybody together. This looks like a good thing. And so he's given the position and the title of Bishop of Rome. So Damasus is placed in this position. And also he's given the title of Supreme Pontiff. Now, that had been a title which only... The emperors had held up until that point, but now it's given to this individual. Again, it's a title, that title of Supreme Pontiff, that is still held by the Pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church to this day. Constantine also set up a basilica and had 13 sarcophaguses or tombs placed within it. His intention was to bring the bodies of all the 12 apostles to Rome and lay them to rest in the basilica. Now you notice he had 13 of these made. Well, the idea was that when he died... He'd be placed next to them as well. Yeah, no delusions of grandeur on his part, of course. Now, Catholic Church, as it became known, and that phrase simply just means all-embracing. It's a, not a, it's not the Roman Catholic Church as we think of the Catholic Church, but it's just a, the Church at large as, as it existed at that time. It had five major centers by this point in history. Antioch, which we're familiar with, Byzantium uh, later to be renamed Constantinople. Um, so Antioch and Constantinople, now it's known as Istanbul, and then Jerusalem. So that's three of them. Those were in the east of the empire. And then there's two others. We had Alexandra in Egypt and Rome. They were both in the west of the empire. So we have this kind of almost natural division, but then this starts to cause issues and problems. Constantine decides he's going to name the church in Rome the Roman Catholic Church. But being concerned that the church of Rome was going off on a tangent, and again supported, the church of Rome was supported very much by the church of Alexandria in Egypt, the churches in the east, so Antioch, Jerusalem and Constantinople, etc., started to name their churches orthodox, meaning original or authentic. So we start to get this division within the early church. Again, we're talking about around about 300 AD onwards. And of course that becomes the root of the Greek, the Russian and the Eastern Orthodox churches from this split. Now the rivalry grew and before long the Roman Catholic Church started to collect relics in an attempt to prove that they were the most authentic. Now relics are simply artifacts that belonged to or were worn by Jesus or the Twelve Apostles or so on or had some other bearing with kind of some key early church figures. And so the church at Rome started to gather these things to say, well, look, we've got this, therefore we're more important. And so they started telling people they had the best relics, so they must be the true church. Well, to counter this, the Greek and Eastern Orthodox churches started to do the same. And they also started to collect relics. And it became very much a, a treasure hunt of who can find what first. 
Now, to underline the stupidity of this, the madness, until not that long ago, the Roman Catholic Church had the body of James, so they claimed. But the Eastern Orthodox Church had his head. Now, in a gesture of goodwill, the Eastern Orthodox Church gave the head to the Roman Catholic Church, so at least James now can be put back together, how nice it is. But this was the stupidity of this, and there's, there's so many other things you can look at historically. Um, it's just just crazy. But the Roman Catholic Church then started to say that the people had been healed from touching the bones of these relics. So these people that had died, the apostles and others that they collected, they're saying that people had touched them and they'd be healed because of it. So the Orthodox Church now did the same thing. You start to see how quickly everything moves away from the simplicity of the gospel and the church as it was. Now, there was a good part of all this, and that was that there was evidence being produced continually to show that we have a historic faith. You know, we don't believe something that's just fabricated. We believe something that has its root in history. There really were apostles. There really were these things. And the relics that they were finding, as some of them, of course, were, were made up. But other things they found, no doubt, were, were genuine. But the downside of all of this is that it soon turned to idolatry. As people started to worship the relics. Now there's another really significant problem at this point, And that is that the whole theology of the church shifts at this point. And this is a really key thing to understand. Particularly for us in the days in which we live. You see, for years the church had been persecuted and been in fear of death. And we've already seen with the church at Smyrna how real that situation was. They'd been eagerly looking for the return of the Lord and holding on to that blessed hope. Their hope was that the Lord would come back and get them out of this mess, in a sense. And there's nothing wrong with that, because throughout Scripture we find references to the fact that we should be looking for Christ's return. We should be excited and waiting for him to come and deliver us from the wrath to come, as we read in Thessalonians. Jesus said in Luke's Gospel that we should you know, be praying that we count it worthy to escape these things that are coming on the world. So it's no surprise that this early church wanted to get out of the persecution and the problems they experienced. But of course now that persecution has just gone overnight, it's stopped. So this changes the way Christians started thinking. It led to the thinking that maybe the persecution had been the tribulation that had been prophesied and promised in the Old Testament and been spoken of by Jesus and the apostles. Maybe all of that persecution they've just gone through was the tribulation. And if that was so, then maybe now we're in the millennium, this freedom the church suddenly has, this liberty to suddenly move into these pagan buildings and make them their own churches and so on. Well, the idea went hand in hand with the allegorization of Scripture. You see, largely promoted by a man called Oregon at this time, there was a suggestion that actually books like Revelation, we don't read as literally taking place and the things that are described there, but it's figurative. And of course, that idea has continued down to this day that actually it's just a, depicts a struggle between good and evil. There's some principles there that we can draw out of it. But that then starts to work its way back and permeates all of scripture. So people then start saying, well, the beginning doesn't really mean God created in six days and rested on the seventh. It's really just an idea to say that God is a wonderful creator. And so then we find that all scripture starts to get allegorized. Later, one of Oregon's pupils, a man by the name of Augustine of Hippo, comes onto the scene. 
Now, Augustine became so influential in the early church, the people like John Calvin, who comes some hundred, a thousand years later, rather, at the time of the Reformation, leans very heavily on his teaching. But you see, the problem we've already got is that the teaching they're leaning on was already corrupt because they'd already moved away from Scripture being the sole authority. And it's now come down to people interpreting Scripture the way they choose. Arrhenius, who was a pupil of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp, you may mention, we, we talked about last week, he was a disciple of John himself. So, John has his disciple, it's Polycarp. Polycarp later has his disciple, Arrhenius. Arrhenius becomes the Bishop of Lyon in France. And there was another historical character, an early church historian, Justin Martyr. Both of them believed, literally, that Christ would return to reign for a thousand years. And they contended with this view. So there were people that were standing against this idea of allegorization and everything coming in. He vehemently protested against attempts to allegorize away the millennial reign of Christ and so on. And there were many others also that did it. Iranians argued also that the Gnostic doctrine of a secret teaching by appealing to apostolic succession was nonsense. In other words, the idea that this idea that there would be a leader of the church and then it would be passed down from the apostles and go on. And of course, this is what the Catholic Church bases their authority on today. They would tell you that the popes are descended from Peter. Of course, we know it's nonsense. And, you know, there's so many historical reasons to show you that. That's just false. But Augustine, realizing that it was unpopular to teach that Jesus was coming back to usurp the rulers of this world. I mean, given the situation, think about it. You've got leaders of a powerful empire. And to start propagating the idea that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take control of the world and that the world rulers will be judged wouldn't be a very popular teaching. You see, it's the same rulers, Constantine and his successors, that actually legalized Christianity. So we don't really want to upset them. So you start to see why some of these things started to come in. Now, there was a Gnostic teaching from the second century as well. The revelation, as I said, was to be taken symbolically, not literally. And it was really drawn out of the teachings that were coming out of Alexandra in Egypt. So the church shifts from looking from the imminent return of the Lord to deliver them to believing that the kingdom had now come or was being manifested on earth through the church. Of course, we've seen all sorts of rehashes of that. We've seen kingdom now theology in the last 30, 40 years. Loads of people coming to the fore that have been suggesting that we are to bring in the kingdom. You've got the likes of Rick Warren and others today that are still trying to do that thing, trying to join us together with Islam. And You see, that's still the view that's taught by the Roman Catholic Church, by most Anglican stroke Protestant churches today, that actually the kingdom has already come, that we're in some sort of millennial reign now. There's this view that's referred to as amillennialism. That there won't be a literal reign of Christ for a thousand years. And so the idea is that we're going to get everything right and sorted. We're going to convert the world and then Jesus will come back. Or for what, you may ask the question, if it's all done by then. And what about all the scriptures that speak about him dealing with the nations of the world when he comes back, if we've all dealt dealt with it all? Also, it means that we're the ones that are doing all the work, not Jesus. It's so contrary to everything we read in scripture. Yet, that's the prevalent view today for most churches. Well, 
The name Pergamos means mixed or elevated marriage. It comes from a couple of root words. In Germany, we've got uh, a berg, which you may be familiar with, means castle or something that's lifted up. It's kind of, comes from this as well. A gamos from marriage, as in polygamy, monogamy, and so on. So it's the idea of an exalted or lifted up marriage, something perverted as well as implication. So the church has become elevated through its marriage to Rome. And now the influences of the pagan religions were starting to come under its roof as well. You see, one day the pagan priests were worshipping their temples and worshipping their idols and so on. The next day they're told they've got to convert to Christianity or die. It really got that serious. Suddenly... We find that rather than the church being the ones who were oppressed, suddenly became the ones who were oppressing. Because they now had this new political power to go along with their belief as well. The Christians then started to use these lavish pagan temples and turn them into churches. And as more churches began to be built, they were modeled on the existing pagan temples. But also began to become even more elaborate. Now it's great news for architecture. But it's really bad for Christianity. Because suddenly, and you know, you go out there and talk to anybody in the street today and ask them about church. They'll think about a building. You know, if you say we're part of a church and we meet in the school, they'll say, oh, sorry? It's very strange to people today. Because they think of church as a building. And it really stems from this root. That suddenly the church stopped being the people and it started to become the buildings. And somebody even once said to me that, years ago that I wasn't going to a proper church because we didn't have stained glass windows and all those kind of things. You can't go to church. The church is you. So, as I said, the buildings become the focus. And that carries on. And as a result of this, we find that people were elevated, Babylonian practices of elevating priests and things, having a, a higher platform for those. Now, all of this really led to one of the worst times in the history of the church. You see, far from setting their minds on heavenly things, the church has started to embrace the world, just as the name Pergamos implies. It's a mixed marriage, an elevated marriage. And suddenly, rather than being married to Christ, the church becomes married to the world. And all sorts of compromises start to come in, including a watering down of the word of God, as we've already mentioned. Now, we've said already we've got these seven kingdom parables that we read about in Matthew 13. Now each one of those, and later in our study we'll come back and look a bit more detail, but I just want to highlight this now. In Revelation we've got these seven letters to the seven churches. We've seen those already. There's seven ages of the church that we've depicted, which we see the parallel with Israel. And there's also seven churches that are written to by Paul. And you'll find that there's an incredible correlation between each of these. Now the one that we're looking at this morning, the church at Pergamos, again this period of time, this third age of the church in a sense. Incidentally, analogous to the book of Corinthians, what does Corinthians really deal with? It's the world in the church, isn't it? That's the theme we read about so much in the book of Corinthians. The way that worldly influence had come into the church. And Paul writes to the Corinthians about addressing these problems. But the, the Parables in Matthew 13, the mustard seed one is very interesting because we read there, another parable putting forth unto them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. 
which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now you've probably heard many Sunday school stories that talk about how wonderful it is that this you know, little seed becomes this wonderful thing. And, but are missing the point. You see, we've already been given the explanation in, earlier in the parables that birds are bad, scripturally. I'm not saying birds are bad, but scripturally they're seen in a very negative light throughout scripture. So the birds of the air are kind of lodging in the branches of this mustard seed that has grown into a tree. You see, the, the mustard seed should only grow into a bush a few feet tall. It's become something it should never have been. And now these ambassadors of Satan, effectively, these workers of iniquity, are now lodging in the branches of the church. Well, that's exactly historically what happened. The church became something it should never have been. It should never have been a political power. I mean, it's no secret that the Roman Catholic Church has wanted to exert political power over all nations of the earth. And it's tried to do so on many occasions. Much of this country's history is checkered with this whole issue of did we bow the knee to Rome effectively? Henry VIII and his decision to move out of the Catholic Church was largely because he wasn't prepared to submit to the authority of Rome. Now he had his own personal reasons of course but we see it much in English history as around the world. Now I want to go back and just look at the letter, just look at some of these things that, that Jesus says. Now first of all the angel of the church of Pergamos, we've already noted that the letter is addressed to the pastor, the leader of the church. And Jesus seems to hold them accountable for the sheep and quite rightly so. Because that's what Scripture says is the case, that pastors will be judged, those who teach, more so because of the fact that we have this influence over people. Does it make us any more important? Does it make us any more valuable in the body? But that's part of the role that's been given to a pastor, to feed the sheep, to bring them to spiritual maturity. But sadly in Pergamos, as in many churches today, the pastor there seems to have kind of left off to a degree. This whole bringing the believers to some sort of spiritual maturity. And we see this then in this vision of Jesus that's presented. Now remember chapter 1, this vision was given, and each of the letters have one of the characteristics. For this one, it's a sharp sword with two edges. That's not the kind of thing you want. You see, it speaks of the Word of God, but the Word of God being able to divide. The Word of God bringing judgment. You see, this church was moving away from the word of God and they were allowing the world to influence them. But then we read in verse 13, I know thy works. J. Vernon McGee makes this comment, he says, the Lord commends this church. He takes note of their circumstances. He knew that these believers were living in a very difficult place. And my friend, the Lord takes note of our circumstances. Sometimes we are inclined to condemn someone who is caught in a certain set of circumstances. But if we were in the same position, we might act in an even worse way than he is acting. That's very true. But we need to always be mindful of where other people are. As Oswald Chambers has said, there's always one more fact about someone that you don't know. That if you did know, would change your perception. So I know that works. I we're told, even where Satan's seat is. Well... Satan had persecuted the church on the outside, but it only made the church stronger. We see that with the church at Smyrna. 
So now the tactics seem to switch. The Satan seems to try and get to the church through the inside, through infiltrating them. Pergamos was overflowing with idolatry as a city and these pagan religion practices. And it seems to, as we see here, become the, the place of Satan's operations, the center of his operations. But then we're told, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. But then they're given this acknowledgement of something that's very positive. It says, and thou holdest fast my name. Now, in the midst of all this compromise that was going on, the church at Pergamos are commended for this. And although much of the so-called church seems to have been shifting away from the truth during this third era of church history, the true church was still standing. It was during this time that Arius, who was a theologian, started building on the Gnostic teaching that Jesus was not God. He's saying that he was the son of God, but he wasn't God. And then Alexander of Alexandria led the move to depose Arius and those that had joined him. And this all led to something that you've probably heard of in 325 AD called the Council of Nicaea. It's where the leaders of the church at that time got together to really discuss these issues and these problems. You know, this church is commended for holding fast his name and historically this age of the church did just that. You see, they get together, they have this meeting and this is the creed that they agree on. When you're familiar with this, so certainly it's used in many churches even today. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten. That is from the essence of the Father. God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made. One in essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, both things in heaven and things in earth. Who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh and was made man. Suffered and rose again the third day, ascended into heaven and cometh to judge quick and dead. And in the Holy Ghost. And those who say, once he was not and before his generation he was not and he came to be from nothing, or those who pretend that the Son of God is of other substance or essence, or created, or alterable, or mutable, the Catholic Church anathemizes. Now, again, the Catholic Church in this context, not the Roman Catholic Church, just the broad church as existed. Now, this was the, the decree that was brought in, this statement of faith, if you like, of where we stand in regard to this. So this church, again, commended for holding fast the name. Now, what happened in the church at Pergamos to give them that, we're not given the details. We don't know historically, but from the historical side of it, we see very clearly that during that age, they did hold fast the name of Jesus. We're also told about Antipas. Being a faithful martyr, we know very, very little about this individual. We know that clearly he was faithful, that he was slain. There is a suggestion that he was roasted alive inside a hollow bronze calf. His name actually means against all, and this man seems to have stood against all the heresy that was coming on. But then Jesus said, I have a few things against thee. And he gets into this issue of doctrine. <laughs> there was a Sunday school child that was uh, having a little test in Sunday school, and the question was, what is false doctrine? And the boy put his hand up and he said, yes, what's your answer? He says, I know. He says, when a doctor gives the wrong thing to someone who's sick. 
But that's exactly what it is. That is what false doctrine is. It's just as with a physical body, if a doctor prescribes something that was wrong, it could be harmful, could be even be fatal. So false doctrine is giving false teaching. And spiritually, it can have just as serious consequences to our spirits. Now, Jesus mentions doctrine twice in this letter. For your information, doctrine is mentioned 45 times in the New Testament. Anything that's mentioned that number of times, we need to pay attention to. There are a lot of people that will say, oh, don't worry about doctrine, it causes division. No, it doesn't. Doctrine doesn't cause division. People moving away from doctrine causes division. That's the problem. The doctrine's fine. If you stick to the doctrine, we have no issues. The problem comes when somebody wants to move away from that because they don't like it. They're the ones that cause division. We're told a number of scriptures, we've got to hold fast to the apostles' doctrine. In fact, in the book of Romans, and Timothy, and in Second John, we're given encouragement, admonition there, to actually divide over doctrine. If people have a different doctrine, don't entertain it. Hold fast to the, the apostles' doctrine. But this issue here we're told about is the doctrine of Balaam. Now, you may be aware that Balaam was this individual back in Numbers 22. And the doctrine of Balaam is this idea where he suggested, you know, he was kind of defeated in his counsel. He shouldn't have gone. He ends up going. It's where the kind of almost comical moment in scripture where remember Balaam's on his way to see Balak, the king of Moab, and Balaam's donkey sees this angel up ahead and starts to speak. So the donkey speaks to Balaam, and the first thing that Balaam says in response is nay, which is kind of a funny thing in itself. Balaam's just blown away that this donkey would speak to him, but suddenly realizes that he shouldn't have gone, but nevertheless he goes, and he finds he can't pronounce curses on Israel, he only can only pronounce blessings. Well, what we don't read in Numbers 22, but what happens after that, is that Balaam then counsels Balak, I know how you can bring these people down. You won't bring them down from the outside by cursing them, by persecuting them. Again, just as we see with the church at Smyrna. What you will be able to do is bring them down from the inside. And so, what they do is they put all their pretty young ladies on the front line, on the border between Moab and Israel, and they start to seduce the young men of Israel who ignore the teaching that they've been given to remain separate from the other nations, and they start to intermarry with some of these Moabite women, and it causes a major problem. J. Vernon McGee makes the comment. He says, The doctrine of Balaam is very different from the error of Balaam, which is referred to in Jude 11, which revealed that Balaam thought that God would curse Israel because they were sinners. He says, It's also different from the way of Balaam, which is in Second Peter 2.15, which was covetousness. Here, in the verse before us, it is the doctrine or teaching of Balaam. He taught Balak the way to corrupt Israel was by intermarriage with the Moabite women. This introduced into the nation of Israel both idolatry and fornication. And during the historical period, that church at Pergamum represents the unconverted world came into the church. So again, the devil couldn't bring the church down from the outside, so he starts to infiltrate and bring it down from within. And again, you just Balak cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrifice to idols to commit fornication and so on. Now verse 15 carries on and says, and so has thou also, this is another thing that Jesus says is bad, them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you remember, 
We've already seen back in the letter to Ephesians how they didn't tolerate this. Verse 6 of chapter 2 says, But thou hast this, is to church of Ephesus, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But you see, now, some years on, it's moved on from that, and it's now become the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. You see, the idea of the Nicolaitans, it was these people who were, people who were placing themselves above the congregation. Well, Jesus hates that because he's the only one that should be in that position. If somebody became, became between you and your children, you become very jealous. And quite rightly, Jesus is the same when people try and put themselves between him and his children. You see, there is no mediator between God and man except Jesus. No priest or pope or leader of a church can ever put themselves in that position. We're actually told in First Peter that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We've been given this privilege. But the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was such, and clearly coming in because it had been a pagan idea, these ideas of an exalted elite priesthood. It goes all the way back to Babylon. And to Babel, actually, to that time. Jesus then says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a, quite a, Statement. Who are the them? And, well, these are the ones teaching the heresy. Jesus says he'll fight against them with the word of God. Chuck Mister made this comment. He said, what a mistake we make if we think that the church has the authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. I love that statement because today so many people think they can tell us what God means, thinks or wants or what he believes or what he likes and dislikes. The church doesn't have that authority. It's given to us by Scripture, and we're to follow Scripture. Again, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, is to him that overcomes what I give to each of the hidden manna. Now, we've spoken about manna already, but this is something that is yet to be given, something that will satisfy, will fill and provide. Jesus is that true bread from heaven. And then we're also told that a white stone, and in the stone, a new name written. Now, there's some scholastic debate over this, but it seems to be that the Sanhedrin would have had stones that they would use when they were voting. They'd have a white stone and a black stone. And depending on whether they agreed with something or disagreed with something, they would cast their stone and that would be the, the decision that was made from them. So it seems to be a white stone. It's almost that kind of um, acknowledgement, that acceptance by God. That rather than you standing before God when we arrive in heaven and having a black stone, we're given a white stone. It's that, no, this one is saved by the blood of the Lamb. Washed clean. That seems to be the implication. But then we're also told, on the stone, a new name written. Do you know you've got a name that only God knows and one day will be revealed to you as well? I think this is quite fascinating. You know, We've got the Bible we know, we love, and but we talked before about these codes that are in the Bible. And there's no question that there are these um, equidistant letter sequences. And there's all sorts of names that are hidden. You know, in Isaiah 53, for example, we've got the names of all the disciples, all those that were part of the events leading up to Calvary and so on, all in the text, coded at different letter intervals. The only name that's not there is Judas, whose name should be there, but Matthias is, who was his replacement. In the portion in Genesis where it talks about the trees that God created, underneath the text, the equidistant letter sequences, there's every tree that appears in the rest of the Bible, all encoded in that short passage in Genesis. And there's so many more. Jesus, and we will see it at the end of Revelation, 
gives us a warning not to take away anything from God's word. Not, not so much as a, a yod or a tittle. Jesus said that himself. Every single bit that is there is important. And you know, you go, could go looking for your name. You can use a computer program. You can see if you can find your name now. You might not find it. But you see, you don't know what your new name is. And I just think it's an interesting thought that if you were to take out something in scripture that you don't like, something you find uncomfortable, something you don't really agree with, something you think, well, culturally now, things have moved on. And you take that portion out of scripture, it could just be that that's the portion of scripture that contains your name. Because I believe that this is the Lamb's book of life. I believe that when we stand before the throne, the books will be opened and it will be whether your name is written in this book. And so it may well be that your name is already recorded in the Bible. In some sort of code form that the Lord has put there. But you see, he's the one that knows that name. So you don't know. And any passage that you choose to take out, any passage, this is why sometimes you read through bits like the beginning of uh, Chronicles. And you've got a long list of names. And sometimes you're tempted to just skip over that because it can get a bit tedious. Well, your name could be in there. God puts a new complexion on it. Every single word in the Bible is important. Now, yes, we are using a translation. But in the original text, yeah, we need to be so careful. We need to hold the Bible in such high regard. Because most people have no concept of what the Bible actually is. And these blessings are promised here. Okay, a couple of minutes, because there's not a huge amount of the Church of Thyatira, and that will set up nicely for next week. Historically, we don't know a huge amount about this church. A lot of this has been lost in the sands of time. Many commentators make this comment that there was probably a lady who was labelled Jezebel, whether that was her real name, or we'll look at that in just a second. She sets herself up in this church of Thyatira as some sort of prophetess and probably bringing many Babylonian ideas and teachings into the church. All of that speculation, we don't really know. But prophetically we do see the incredible fit of this church, just like a glove, to the medieval church period. So from about 600 AD, following on from what we've just looked at, that area of compromise where the world comes into the church. So from around about 600 AD up to about 1520, to the beginning of the time of the Reformation. So what we sometimes refer to as the Dark Ages, that medieval period. The name Thyatira means continual sacrifice. And again, that is very, very apt. They traded in purple cloth. That's one thing we do know. We see that in the book of Acts, chapter 16. And maybe other things. But we don't know a huge amount. But what we do know, again, is that this church seems to depict the Roman Catholic Church. Because the churches we've been speaking about up until now were the church, the body of Christ. But then we start to get these little divisions, these denominations or whatever you want to call them. And we end up with a split between the Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church, which becomes the Roman Catholic Church and goes on. And of course the Roman Catholic Church brings in this idea of transubstantiation. The idea that the body, or the, the bread and the cup when we celebrate communion, become literally the body and blood of Christ. And they speak of this continual sacrifice that every time they celebrate, it's as if Jesus is being Sacrificed over and over again. How fitting that name is, just to that on itself. This incidentally ties up with that parable we have in Matthew 13 of the woman and the leaven. Now again, looking at these things, we have this period, the next period, the fourth age of the church. Incidentally, ties very nicely with the book of Galatians, and we can draw a number of parallels with this. But this idea 
Let's just read Matthew 13, 33. Another parable spoke he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. I mean, this is something that for a Jew is abhorrent. The idea is that you're putting something in that's corrupting. And we have a woman depicted here as the one that is doing it. Now again, this is the age when in Israel's history they rejected God's rule over them. The idea of theocracy, God's rule. And Saul then is appointed to become king. God said to Samuel, you know, don't worry, listen to the people because they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me. Well, this was the age of the church when suddenly we end up with popes. People that rule over the church. So let's just look at the text. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, Right, these things says, the Son of God who has his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now that speaks of Jesus looking, that penetrating gaze. He sees all of these things. And particularly when you look at the history of the Roman Catholic Church, many things have been done behind closed doors and later have been discovered. Jesus sees all of these things. The feet of fine brass, speaking of judgment, that's how Jesus presents himself to this church. Again, Jesus knows all these things. I know thy works. And notice he commends them for their charity and service and faith and patience and works. Well, that speaks of the Roman Catholic Church. They've done a lot of good works. And the last to be more than the first. You know, you don't often hear of other religious groups outside of Christianity establishing nursing homes, care homes, and looking after people in the way that Christians have done, setting up universities and those kind of things. You know, in this country, in America, the universities started as places of education. They started by men of faith. So the Catholic Church certainly has done a lot of good works. But notwithstanding, we read on, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Jesus is very clear here. That this is something really he detests. Now, it's interesting that we have this reference to Jezebel. If you remember way back, we looked at this as we were going through our study in Kings. Jezebel is famous for effectively setting up an inquisition. She goes in this Nabal's vineyard and she gets people to lie about him. He gets imprisoned and eventually killed, effectively, as a result of this. And then she gives the land to Ahab. Well, isn't that just what the Catholic Church has done through the whole period of the Inquisition? And I'm not going to take you into details now, because when we get to Revelation 17 and 18, we will look in more detail about some of these things. Because they speak, those chapters, 17 and 18, speak of the judgment of this false religious system that has grown throughout the ages and had its root in Babylon. Notice that she's self-appointed. She calls herself a prophetess. Well, certainly the Catholic Church has given themselves this self-appointed status. They say that they are in the office of St. Peter, who they tell you was the first pope, and yet there's no evidence that Peter ever went to Rome at all. In fact, probably Peter didn't go to Rome. Popes take this title of themselves the Vicar of Christ, and so on. And she leads... People into fornication. Well, again, that's so true of the history of the Catholic Church. Leads 
people into eating things sacrificed unto idols. Well, that's exactly what happens through transubstantiation when they celebrate the Mass. That's what they're doing there. But you notice God is long-suffering, gave us space to repent of a fornication. But sadly, we're told she rejected. Now, behold, I'll cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. So we see the prophetic scope of this. That Jesus is saying, this church will be thrown into the, the great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And notice that we have, I will cast her and them that commit adultery with her. It's no accident that we look through history and we see so many churches getting drawn into the Catholic Church. And today, more than ever, Anglicans, Methodists, Baptists, all starting to get drawn into the Catholic Church. You remember the situation we had when there was the big debate early on about women priests, women vicars. Well, there was a number of people that left the Anglican Church and joined the Catholic Church. Many have joined the Catholic Church because of their stance on abortion or homosexuality or whatever else. But the Catholic Church has remained there with open arms. The Catholic Church has pronounced that all Muslims are saved. They're our brothers. And yet, for true Protestants, there's still over a hundred anathemas pronounced against us. We, according to the Roman Catholic Church, are on our way to hell. I'm just going to pull out a couple of things here. This, and I will kill her children. That's not God's children. These are her offspring with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts. I mean, that's God really getting down to the thoughts and intents of the hearts. Reins is used a number of times in scripture, and it's kind of reference really the kidneys, that which purify. But I will come unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, Now what I want to make very clear this morning, I'm not condemning Roman Catholics. But the church system clearly is corrupt and way, way, way removed from what the Bible teaches. But I believe that there are Christians within the Roman Catholic Church. I believe there's Christians in almost any denomination you can find. Anything that comes under the banner of Christian, you will find true believers there. But I think as we get closer and closer to the rapture, more and more individuals will separate themselves from those groups. Because clearly here, but I say uh, unto you, I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. It's interesting, there's not a command here to do more, to work hard, it's holding fast. You know, we've got to be so careful not to lose that which God has given us. Now we can't lose our salvation. We're talking on Thursday night at Bible study about some of the rewards that await us. He that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. What a statement that is. To anybody who does put their trust solely in Jesus, not in a church system, in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul makes an incredible statement. He says, don't you know that we're going to judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? He's saying here that we should be able to settle issues within a church ourselves because, do you know, you're going to be given the authority to judge angels, angelic beings. You won't need to be judging the good angels, but the fallen angels, those that have rebelled against God, you'll be given authority. And there's so many more. Luke 19, I'm not going to take you through the scripture now, but if you want to make a note of it, Luke 19, 12 to 19. Read that when you get home. and Look at it in the context of that which Jesus says is awaiting us. We're told in that passage to occupy till I come. 
It's speaking about those who will be given authority over various cities. But Jesus here says to this church that those who don't get caught up in all of this idolatry, that will be given power over the nations. And he shall rule them. Speaking of Jesus, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. Now this is again what we read in, in Psalm 2 of Jesus. I said to conclude, and I will give him the morning star. You know, we're told in Revelation 22, verse 16, that Jesus is the morning star. He says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Jesus is saying, I will give him the morning star. Who is the morning star? Jesus is the morning star. You will be given Jesus. How? In marriage. As part of the bride of Christ. We will be united with Christ. That is amazing. The one who is speaking of the judgment that is going to come and the way that all these things will be dealt with and sorted out. We're told that those who are faithful, who don't get caught up in false doctrine, who don't allow themselves to get into idolatry, will be given Christ himself. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. You know, we should know, we should be hearing. We're told that we are children of the light, children of the day, not of the night nor of the darkness. Let us then not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Sadly, the church by and large has stopped watching. They've stopped waiting for the return of Christ. But we are to keep watching, to keep waiting. Let us hear what the Spirit says to this church. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these things that... Lord, challenge us. And sometimes, frankly, they shock us as we look at history, as we look at what has happened. And yet, Lord, if we were there, would we have been any different? Would we have been any less deceived than many of these people? Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to walk by faith in the grace that you give so that we not fall into these various trials and temptations that surround us. Lord, we know that There is sin which so easily ensnares. But Lord, you've made a way. Lord, you've said that no one will be tempted beyond that which they are able, but you will always make a way of escape. Lord, whether it's temptation to the lust of the flesh or to false doctrine or to idolatry or to anything else, there is a way of escape. Lord, help us to look unto Jesus. And Lord, to focus on the wonderful joy that awaits those who are yours. Lord, impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, just give us a greater love for you, we pray. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.